0: Hey everyone, this is Nick, and welcome back to your weekly Linux open source and privacy news podcast. And this week we have a proposal for Fedora to abandon X11 soon for their KDE spin and only support Wayland. We have the new Thunderbird logo, which I personally like, but a lot of people seem to not really enjoy, Uh, but it's still here to mark the complete redesign of the app. We have a nasty vulnerability in Android, That basically makes your fingerprint sensor completely useless and easy to bypass. And we've got Meta being European Unioned again uh, and being severely hamstrung by a new ruling and new obligations. And we have the usual Destro and desktop environment related news, gaming news and more. So as usual, all the links are in the show notes uh, for all the articles that are used. And as always, the show is still user funded for now. So check out the link. In the show notes as well if you want to support it now let's get into it so let's begin with fedora kde planning to scrap x11 completely and i personally think it's going to be the first in a long series of similar changes uh, basically, what the Fedora KDE spin announced, which is basically an official variant of Fedora, but with KDE instead of GNOME, what they, what they announced is a proposal that when Plasma 6 is out, they will ditch X11 from the spin and only ship Wayland. Uh, that goes hand-in-hand hand with the decision made by Plasma developers, because they made no secrets that on Plasma 6, their focus will be Wayland 100%. They will not add new features for X11. There might be some bug fixes and stuff like that, but basically everything new in terms of gestures, overviews and stuff like that will probably only work on Wayland. It's going to be their default recommendation. If you want to use Plasma, you should use Wayland. Distros will still be able to not use Wayland, but KDE developers won't recommend it and might not even support it at some point. And that's understandable. X11 is basically in maintenance mode. It's not getting any new features. It's not getting any revamps or just rewrites of code. It's just getting patches. And almost no desktop developer works on adding any of their new features for X11. And so now the Fedora KDE Spin plans to completely drop that support in Plasma. And they advance a few reasons. First, uh, Fedora is basically an upstream to Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, it's basically a Red Hat project, and Red Hat Enterprise Linux has marked X11 as deprecated since their release uh, 9.0, I think. Uh, second, X11 is no longer actively developed, uh, when Wayland is, and support for the Wayland protocol in all desktop environments is still actively developed. And third, Wayland is ready for 99% of users. It doesn't cover 100% of the scope of X11, but it works. It's smoother, it's faster, it's now supported by NVIDIA GPUs if you've got a recent enough NVIDIA GPU and recent enough drivers, which means that basically by the time the Fedora KD Spin uh, releases the next version at the end of the year, or it might even be the version after that, there shouldn't be really any major issues remaining in terms of support and how it works. Still, for now, it is just a proposal. It could be rejected. There are still a large number of X11 supporters in the community that just don't want to move to Wayland because sometimes X11 does things that Wayland doesn't or sometimes they have a preconceived notion that Wayland isn't ready when they haven't tried it in three years and so, of course, they think it's not ready because it it wasn't back then. It depends, but there are still some use cases that that X11 feels better than Wayland. So this proposal could be rejected, but if it's not, uh, basically when Plasma 6 is out, X11 is also out from the Fedora KDE spin. Now, Plasma 6 might not release with the usual release calendar, it might not be around September or October. It might be at the very end of the year, which means that this proposal, even if it's accepted, might not impact Fedora 39, which will release in October, but it might impact Fedora 40, uh, which should release in April, I think. April 2024. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's probably a long shot still, and if it's rejected, then nobody has anything to worry about, and if it's accepted, it's basically in almost a year, probably. So, I think everything should be fine. And it won't prevent you from using x wayland applications. This method will still work, you just won't be able to run Plasma with X11. You'll run it on Wayland or you won't run it at all. I think it's a decent decision. I think it's a move we're going to see repeated in the next years. X11 is something that is still loved by some users, or at least that some users prefer. I don't know if people really love X11. But basically, no one wants to work on it anymore. It's 40-year-old spaghetti code that cannot be twisted or manipulated to work correctly uh, with like high refresh rate monitors, like multi-monitor setups that have different refresh rates, variable refresh rates, HDR, stuff like that. It just cannot support all of this where Wayland can be adapted to do so and compositors using Wayland can implement these features as well. So I would expect that in the next three to five years, X11 will not be the default anywhere uh, on any distro about those that specifically aim to support old hardware. Now, on to something probably a little less controversial, but probably still controversial because icon design and UI is always very subjective and people have different opinions on them. But it's Thunderbird's new logo. So, of course, a podcast isn't the best place to talk about a logo. So I'll invite you to click on the link in the show notes uh, for, for this post where they showcase the new logo. But basically, Thunderbird has been on a trajectory for, I think, about a year to completely revamp the UI, the UX, trying to bring an Android client that syncs with your desktop client. They're also going to be working on an iOS client for Thunderbird. They're really bringing this app back into the modern age with a newer look that feels better for new users while retaining all the power that the app already has. It's a great project, and I can't wait for July when they release that Supernova update, which really looks fantastic from what they shared. And so to accompany this renewal project, they have a new logo, because the current one, that giant blue bird that basically hugs an email, has been there for, I don't know, probably as long as the app existed. I'm pretty sure it's very close to the first iteration of that logo. And... Yeah, it doesn't look bad by any means, that that Thunderbird logo, but I understand the motivation to try and replace it with something newer. So basically what it's now is the Firefox logo, but instead of having a red panda, because it's not a fox, it's a red panda apparently, uh, so instead of having a red panda hugging a globe, uh, now you get a reversed side bluebird hugging an email. And some people complain that it's, oh no, it's another corporate minimalism thing. It's not. Like, look at it. It's not minimalist at all. It's Neuomorphic at best, which I think is a decent enough style. But it's not minimalist, and it's not like using a basic font to just write the name of your app or just trying to draw black outlines on a white background. It's not like Google Apps on Android, basically. Like, you've got three colors on a white background. It's, it's way more work than that. And it looks really close to the Firefox icon, but since it's inverted... And since the colors are completely different, I think it matches well with the kind of sibling project. I think it's a good logo. I think it looks good. Some people didn't like it, but personally, I think it, it's nice to change those things from time to time. If you want to signify that your app is no longer the old thing that your dad used, but that you could never see yourself using, if you want to signify that you have passed over that barrier and that you have made a new fantastic looking app that's that's been heavily worked on, then I think a new logo is good. So yeah, I like it. You might not. Just check it out uh, in the link in the show notes to see if you like it or not. Now, on to more serious business. And if you use Android, and, and chances are you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, because like my anonymous analytics on Castapod tell me that definitely a lot of you are using Android. Basically, you've got a big security problem on your hands. Android phones are vulnerable to a brute force attack on their fingerprint sensor. And this attack called Brute Print, can unlock any Android phone that has a fingerprint authentication enabled. So basically, if you have fingerprint sensor enabled and you have registered at least one fingerprint, then you're vulnerable to this attack. So this specific attack uses two other vulnerabilities in Android. Those are zero-day vulnerabilities. And it also takes advantage of the fact that the biometric data on Android is not protected well enough. Uh, You can basically grab it with a man in the middle attack, which, if you don't know what that is, you're basically placing a piece of software in between the two pieces of software that normally communicate their information. And so you grab that information in the middle, and no one's the wiser. Now, this attack requires physical access to the phone, which isn't too hard to get. Like, anybody who steals your phone has that. If you lend it to someone for, like, I don't know, 10 minutes, they have it. And the equipment you need to perform the attack only costs about $15, so basically anyone can get it. Now, of course, the attack is not fast. It seems like it takes from 3 to 14 hours to complete it successfully, which is basically running this thing that brute forces trying to give you as many fingerprints as it can in a short amount of time, and at some point it's just going to unlock. But it seems like the attack gets faster the more fingerprints you have registered. So, for example, if you registered your two thumbs or two thumbs and two fingers and you have four fingerprints, then this attack gets exponentially faster because there are more fingerprints to guess or to land upon uh, by chance or to grab while they're trying to transmit the data. So... It's a big, big problem. Uh, The researchers who discovered this uh, tested 10 very popular smartphones, including the Xiaomi Mi 11 Ultra, the OnePlus 7 Pro, the Huawei P40 and other Huawei devices, and even some iOS devices. All the Android devices were vulnerable, whatever the version of Android, uh, if they used Harmony OS or Vanilla Android or a skin or whatever. But the iOS devices did not have the problem, probably because they have that that secure enclave thing, I think, where they store all the biometric data, which is not really accessible easily by the OS itself. I don't know. It's not great. Uh, not only because anybody who steals your phone will now have an easy enough method to unlock that phone for like 15 bucks, so... Any organized network of people who just steal phones, unlock them, wipe them, and resell them can now do that super easily. Uh, second, because a thief could just want to not wipe your phone and just grab your data to use, for example, to buy stuff online or to impersonate you or anything. But there's also the issue of law enforcement, because it means that basically if you're on an Android phone right now, law enforcement can unlock it, no problems, without asking for your fingerprint, without any issue. And it's only going to take them from 3 to 14 hours, which can be a bit problematic depending on where you live and like what the laws are. And if you fall strictly between the bounds of this law or not, depending on your gender, sexual orientation, political beliefs, religious beliefs, it's a big problem. And the main issue is also that Android updates are not a thing like unless you own a Google Pixel or the latest Samsung phone you don't know when you're going to get a security update because I have no doubts that this security thing will be be patched very soon like Google and and Android the developers just can't not react to that they have to fix it it's a big big problem so they are going to fix it But then, the carriers have to sign off on it, the manufacturers have to sign off on it, they have to distribute that update, which means that probably all phones that are four to five years old will never get that update, and so will stay vulnerable as long as they're here. Sometimes three-year-old or two-year-old phones have already been abandoned by their manufacturers, and they won't get any updates. So, this is an issue, because, well, a lot of phones will just never have a patch for this. They might not be the big target for thieves, but they can still be unlocked very easily. So, yeah, big problem. I'll follow this up uh, closely as soon as we know when there's a patch, if it's getting applied or not. If I can find more details, I'll follow up because, yeah, it feels like a very, very problematic thing. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about uh, desktop environments and distros. So first, in the KDE world, uh, there are some interesting things coming. So there's obviously the HDR support that is being worked on that I already talked about last week. Not going to go over that again. Uh, But KD developers are also still improving uh, the various applications and Plasma itself. And most of these improvements are still making their way to KD 5.27. So users still get new features and improvements to their apps and their desktop, even as Plasma 6 is being heavily worked on and will take some amount of time before it's released to the public. So, first, uh, KDE developers worked on ScanPage, which is the application that lets you scan documents with your scanner, and they added support for scanner-specific adjustments. So, you can now adjust the brightness, the contrast, and the color balance of the scans from the app itself, which is really cool. Uh, Second, they changed up stuff for the brightness slider in Plasma. Previously, you could try to slide it with your mouse uh, to try and be precise, or you could just press the various keys on your keyboard that let you change the brightness. But this went over by, I think, 10% increments or 5% increments, which might not be precise enough for some people. So now you can hold the Shift key while you change the brightness, and you'll adjust it by 1% increments. Uh, So it's going to be way more precise. You could already do that with the sound, but now you can do it with the brightness as well. In terms of file associations, where you say, for example, this app can open this file type, you can now change these file associations in bulk uh, from the settings, which is going to be much more efficient. They fixed the magic lamp minimize issue, which will now work better with multi-monitor setups, with hidden panels, floating panels. And so this effect is something you might use if you have replicated some kind of macOS setup because it's basically the same animation as when you minimize an app in macOS where it just like falls down into some kind of of genie bottle where it falls down into its app icon in the panel. Uh, They also fixed a problem with the tiling mode in Plasma 5.27. This is basically where you set the window gap between the various windows. It only applied between the windows and the screen edges, but not between the windows themselves. And now that window gap is applied basically all around the window, which will look much nicer and gives you more customization. That's better. And they also ported the activities settings panel to Plasma 6, well, to QML for Plasma 6, uh, and they redesigned it a little bit, uh, which means that this feature is still getting some love for Plasma 6 because it's cool. Uh, they Maybe discussed, maybe getting rid of it in Plasma 6 because they didn't really know how to communicate about it or what it did or or what was the use case. But apparently it won't go away because they're still working on it. And finally, they will change the checkboxes that are used in the little Plasma pop-ups for network or Bluetooth. You had checkboxes to disable, like for example Wi-Fi or your, your wired connection or Bluetooth. And those checkboxes were not what most other desktops used. Uh, Most other desktops use a toggle, which is, I think, more explicit for these things. And so they're going to replace these with toggles in Plasma 6, which makes more sense. They also fixed uh, the usual enormous amount of bugs, uh, 136 uh, this week, which is big. And so apart from the last two improvements, uh, like porting the activities panel for Plasma 6 and the checkboxes turning into toggles, everything else lands in Plasma 5.27 and the next KDE gear compilation so you don't need to wait to benefit from this awesome work if your distro doesn't ship Plasma 6 immediately because it's not going to release in the usual time frame where distros start adopting a new Plasma version you still get all the updates and I think the model that KDE has adopted right now as they're transitioning to Plasma 6 is the right one like you've got the KDE gear compilation which is completely independent Uh, from the KDE Plasma desktop, so all the apps you use can still be used as long as your distro provides app updates, or if you use like Flatpak to install them, or FlatHub, uh, you you get the updates, you get the improvements. And the desktop itself, everything that is not a major new feature, also seems to be ported to 5.27 for people as they wait, so it's cool. Now for me personally, as somebody who creates content, it would be much better to have the KDE gear updates to the apps, and the KDE Plasma updates at the same time, so I can make a single recap video about them, but yeah, that's not how they work and honestly would only make my job better and probably everyone else's harder, so yeah, I get it. Now, for distributions, uh, we now have confirmation that the Fedora Onyx spin uh, will be accepted as an official uh, variant of Fedora for Fedora 39. So I already talked very briefly about Fedora Onyx in a a few podcasts ago, maybe four weeks or something, and basically it's the immutable version of Fedora Budgie. Fedora Budgie is an official spin that's already been accepted since Fedora 38, so you can already download Fedora with the Budgie desktop if you prefer, but it didn't have an immutable spin. It's the regular Fedora workstation with Budgie. Fedora Onyx is basically Fedora Silver Blue with the budgie desktop instead of GNOME and so this has been accepted it will start with fedora 39 and so people will be able to just download that and install that immediately which for immutable distros is important because basically you can't really write to the system itself uh, you can just apply the updates and reboot for them to work and everything else needs to be handled in containers or using flat so you can't really easily change uh, the desktop environment. You can layer packages on top of the base. So you could say, yes, I do want to install all these packages for KDE, but the distro isn't meant to be used this way and it's a little bit more work. And so, yeah, it's better to have the distro with the desktop environment you want to run right off the bat so you don't have to manipulate the base system, which is not meant to be changed. So that's cool. So Fedora Onyx will join a Fedora Kinoite, which is the immutable KDE spin of Fedora. And of course, Fedora Silverblue, which is the GNOME immutable version of Fedora. And if you're wondering why you would ever want an immutable distro, well, it's for security and stability. Any app you install just cannot write to your root partition, to your slash folder or any folder inside of that, except maybe for like... TMP, VAR, or ETC for configurations. And generally everything else is locked, which means that programs that install themselves in slash /opt, like DaVinci Resolve, are out of the question. And which means that basically anything you want to install you'll have to install using a flat pack or an app image or stuff like that. And generally, since this can be pretty limiting, these distros offer access to containers using, for example, Toolbox or DistroBox. Uh, That lets you install another uh, distribution with access to a shell to install packages or apps in that. If you're wondering how that could work, I very recently, I think it was three days ago or two days ago, I reviewed Vanilla OS, which is basically the poster boy for this kind of model. Immutable base and distro containers that are very well implemented inside of the system. With all the apps you install installing, the container appearing in the app grid of GNOME. If you're interested in that, uh, check out the link in the show notes for my YouTube channel. Well, you'll find that video. It's going to be the latest I published, probably, uh, or the second to last. Oh, yeah. Basically, check it out, and you'll understand better what an immutable distro is. Now, something that I basically never talk about is the Enlightenment desktop, because they basically never publish anything about how they update it, or how it's moving, or where it's going, so there's basically nothing to report on. But some people tell me that I should really give it a shot, and apparently uh, there's a distro that uses a slightly modified version of Enlightenment, which is called Bodhi Linux, or Bodhi Linux Linux. Like B-O-D-H-I, Body Linux, Uh, they have a beta for version 7.0. And apparently it's a super lightweight distro. It's based on Ubuntu LTS, but it's running Enlightenment, which is very lightweight, with a window manager on top of it. So they're based on 22.04, which isn't exactly brand new or up-to-date, but it should be very stable. Uh, And improvements that they added to Body Linux include a new boot and login theme, a much improved set of Window Manager modules, like the list of the modules they modified. Modules being, for example, the little applets, uh, the date and time, the battery, the stuff like that. Basically, what lets you turn your panel into something usable. Uh, The list of changes to these modules is enormous. Uh, They added the ability to tile windows by snapping them to a screen edge. They added a bunch of new GTK themes and icon themes. And they replaced uh, the Chromium browser Snap by a normal package uh, compared to regular Ubuntu. And they also updated the various apps they use like Thunar, the file manager, uh, which was updated to its latest version. So with this beta and with the final release, you'll still get the kernel 5.15 because that's an LTS kernel. But you can also get an ISO with 5.19, which... I'm pretty sure might be end-of-life, so I don't really know why. Or you can get an ISO with Pop! OS's version of the 6.2 kernel if you need better hardware support. So I'm thinking maybe Body Linux could be a good way to try out Enlightenment, but if you know about other Enlightenment-based distributions that might be interesting to give a good look at this desktop, you can leave me a comment on the podcast website. It's at uh, com, And you can just click on the episode. You've got a comment section. You can comment here. I think you need like some kind of Mastodon account or something. Um, Not not 100% sure. Or you can just hit me up on Mastodon and just tell me about it. But yeah, I'm interested in reviewing uh, Enlightenment because I basically never used it since I think 2010 maybe. So yeah, it must have changed a lot since then. Now, for hardware and hardware support, we have two main informations. Uh, one regarding AMD and one regarding Intel. And that might also concern AMD in the future. So first, for AMD, uh, they're working on improving support for Linux for their various CPUs. And so AMD engineers have been working specifically on the suspend and resume uh, well features uh, on Linux. So there were a few issues that made suspend and resume unreliable. Sometimes it took super long. Sometimes the computer never really put like went into the suspend state. Sometimes it couldn't resume from that state. Sometimes it was way too slow. So they, they ironed out a lot of the kinks around this and they made it way more reliable. And they also worked on the S2 idle uh, suspend mode, which is suspend to idle, which is basically the default mode for suspending your computer or your laptop. Uh, if you have a Ryzen CPU. But on top of that, they also found out that they could shave off 120 milliseconds uh, from the resuming times. And it might seem like not much time at all, because 120 milliseconds, like, yeah, it's, it's not much. But honestly, it can be the difference between lifting up your laptop lid and having your display turn on instantly, or lifting up your laptop lid and having a black screen And then it turning on, which feels less responsive. So it's always nice to shave off as much time as you can uh, from these resume times. And interestingly, what they found is that there was just a check missing in the USB driver, which added some delay. And so adding this line, which is very short, it's just a super short line of code to just add that check again it will shave off some time. And so this will land in the Linux kernel 6.5 with all the other improvements to suspend and resume, which should make the experience of using AMD devices way better for everyone. And funnily enough, uh, the piece of code they fixed was initially submitted by an Intel engineer, which basically means that AMD fixed Intel's mess. Uh, and yeah, that's that's kind of fun. Now the other side of the hardware news is Intel, which is apparently pondering spinning off the x86 architecture into a more lightweight one called x86s. And this spin-off would remove support for 16 and 32-bit operating systems, not necessarily applications. So this would allow them to simplify how a PC boots, because apparently when a PC boots, it has to switch from state to state. So it it starts in 16-bit mode, then protected 16-bit, then 32-bit, then 64-bit, then protected 64-bit. Basically it jumps through all these rings uh, in the CPU that support those various uh, bit modes. And from what I understand, I am no CPU expert and I might be like completely misunderstanding this. But so this would simplify how a PC boots, making it faster and more reliable, but it would also simplify the design of future CPUs and so probably reduce production costs and so very likely increase margins because you literally cannot expect these kind of companies to pass on the savings uh, from production to the consumer. They're just going to pocket the difference, let's be honest. Now, this... New spin-off would be still hypothetical. They have written a very long, very technically focused paper, which I couldn't make complete sense of because I'm not that knowledgeable in how CPUs are designed, honestly. Uh, Nothing has been announced or confirmed just yet. But it's interesting because basically we would not lose anything uh, from this transition. Uh, CPUs using this new architecture would just need less transitions to boot and to initialize, and you would not be able to run a 16-bit or 32-bit operating system directly on the hardware itself. But 32-bit app support would still work because it's actually handled by the OS itself, not by the CPU. And so these binaries are run in the same sector of the CPU that is used to run the OS, not in the sectors that would be removed by this new architecture and you could still virtualize 32-bit systems on a 64-bit operating system. So you would not lose anything but the ability to run a very old 32-bit only system, which honestly would probably not work all that well anyways because it would not have drivers for your CPU at all. So you would not lose anything but the CPUs would be easier to produce and your boot process would be simplified and probably more efficient. I think it's a good move and I hope they can manage it if it works exactly as it has been described. Which means you, need, you still need to run 32-bit programs today. If you use Windows or Linux, your Steam client is 32-bit and a lot of games are 32-bit only and not 64-bit. So you still need that kind of support. But from what they describe, you would still keep that support. So yeah... I'm all for the change, like make it leaner, make it faster, it might even make it more energy efficient, who knows, so yeah, let's go, let's make this happen. Now this week we also have the unfortunate, let's say death, of a search engine, uh, Neva, which I basically had never heard about, uh, apart from a few YouTube comments when I talked about search engines, which is not a good sign, because search engines are something I research thoroughly, and I... Never happened upon Neva before like no one mentions it on the internet like I could not find this thing The only way I learned about it was through some YouTube comments and not many of those So Neva was a search engine focused on privacy They didn't display any ads They did collect a little bit of usage data to tailor the search results to what you wanted, but they were super transparent about that data. It was all anonymous and it was not exploited in any other way than to display the results that fit your query. And they were financed with a subscription model for additional features. So you could use it for free, but you could also pay to get access to more stuff. And they were completely independent uh, from Google or Bing. They had their own index, their own website crawler, and so it was an interesting search engine, apparently. But it turns out that building a sustaining, a sustainable, sorry, business model in the search engine field is really hard. And so they announced that they will shut down this iteration of this engine in the next few weeks and that they will actually refund uh, the paid users for the remaining amount of their subscriptions. They say that building a good search engine is actually very possible. And I think we have proof of that Uh, with example, let's not take uh, like Startpage or DuckDuckGo uh, or Ecosia as examples because they basically piggyback mostly off of Bing search or Google search, just anonymized. But for example, you could take Brave Search, which is actually quite efficient, is doing relatively well compared to other independent search engines and does not rely anymore on Google or Bing unless you specifically tell it to. So you can build a good search engine, but convincing users to use it is way harder. And interestingly, they said the issue was not to convince people to pay for the service. Apparently their conversion rate from uh, like non-paying users to paying users was like very acceptable. They just had a very hard time onboarding New users, paid or unpaid, that they could then convert to paid users. And I, I can understand that. Like that that's something I, I'm faced with every day. And that if you're a Linux user, you're faced with every day. Trying to get people to move away from big tech services or, or giant data collecting operating systems is extremely tough. Like getting the notoriety and, and getting people to even consider trying you out and accepting that you might not work exactly like what you're used to is very, very difficult. Now, of course, Neva will not just shut their doors down. They will pivot to, what else then? AI, because of course, everybody has to do AI now. So they will move to an AI-powered search engine using their own index that they already developed, uh, but yeah, using large language models. So you probably will not get the usual... Uh, list of website links you will probably get like a summary of a question with maybe references and maybe they'll just use their index to to feed their large language model they didn't give many details on the technology they will use if it's something that they developed internally or not they said they started working on it in 2022 and they already moved uh, their homepage of the website uh, saying powered by ai blah blah yeah it's all the buzzwords so we'll have to see if it turns this search engine into something completely unusable, weird, and completely copyright infringing like most AI products, or if it's actually decent and usable. But it really feels like everything has to be powered by AI and I can't wait for this bubble to sort of burst and only keep like the actual useful products. I don't know. It, it just feels like everybody's jumping on that bandwagon nowadays and it doesn't seem like it's really adding a lot of value right now. Now, speaking of big tech, uh, Meta, also known as Facebook, because that's a much better name for them, uh, they just got hit by yet another fine, $1.3 billion this time, which is still probably insignificant compared to Meta's revenue, but since they're already hurting a lot these days, this might sting a little bit more. Now, as always, the EU is the instigator, like it's always the EU that finds these companies, and it's through the Irish Data Protection Commission, as always, because Meta is based in Ireland for their European operations. So it's the Irish Data Protection Commission that like overviews all of these things. So the, the issue boiled down to the fact that Meta does not uh, store the EU citizens data on EU servers. They actually transfer it back to their US servers and that's something that is not allowed uh, because like the European Union wants to protect their citizens from US government spying because the US government can basically require any company to give away all the data that they have whether it concerns US citizens or not. So, of course the EU does not want that, they want to be the only ones able to spy on their own citizens, Uh, They, they, or at least the various countries that make up the EU want that, they don't want the US to spy on their citizens. I can understand, matter of national security probably, but yeah, it's still kind of ironic. So this came after the agreement between the EU and the US on data transfers fell apart. There was something called the Privacy Shield that regulated how data transfers could be done uh, from the from servers based in the EU to the US. Because yes, the EU understood that sometimes, like uh, a US company, needs to have some copy of the data on US servers to do some treatments on them, to maybe automate them, to maybe like improve their products. But there was some kind of framework in place that regulated all of that and basically said, okay, you can transfer some stuff, but you have to anonymize everything that can be anonymized. So you can't identify who is who and you can profile these people or monitor them. Of course, this was not enough at all. They still kept like, well, it's still allowed for IP addresses and of stuff that really makes identifying the person super easy. So this privacy shield fell through and it doesn't have a replacement yet, which is why Meta is in hot waters right now because even though the privacy shield fell through, they were like, yeah, it's going to be replaced by something else, no way. So they took no measures uh, trying to protect the data from EU citizens and now they're being fined for it because, well, they did nothing. And apparently we're very far away from having a replacement for the privacy shield. Because there's been a new draft, which has been almost ready, but apparently it's not enough to protect uh, the data from EU citizens towards the US. I don't know if it's all a political move to try and get more independent from the US. I have no idea. But the fact of the matter is, like this thing has no replacement yet, and so companies that transfer EU citizens' data to the US will be harassed by the EU for fines because it's illegal. So Meta has been Order to stop that information transfer, which includes usernames, emails, IP addresses, messages, browsing history on their various websites, geolocation, and a lot more, and they have five months to comply with the decision. And they also need, which is more important, they also need to erase all the user data that they transferred in this way since the privacy shield fell apart, which is going to be extremely hard for them because unless they've got timestamps of everything that's been transferred and the exact date of the transfer, and like they keep complete records, unmodified records. If, if they erase basically some piece of data with another, they might not be able to know uh, what they need to delete. So it's probably never going to happen. And of course, Meta is not happy about the decision. They complain that this was flawed and unjustified. And of course, they are very wrong about this because... You might not like the laws that are applied where you do business, but you still have to follow them. I don't like paying my taxes for my company in France. I think they're absolutely way too high uh, for a single individual. Uh, It's like 33% of my revenue. And yeah, I still have to follow those rules. So Meta is welcome to stop operating if the EU, if they don't like the EU rules, I personally won't miss them, but they can't say it's flawed and unjustified. It's... It's a decision based on a legal basis. They have to follow it. So of course they appealed it. It's going to drag along for another year and then they're going to have to pay the fine anyway. It always ends up this way. Okay, and let's finish this podcast with the gaming news. So first we have Yuzu, which is the Nintendo Switch emulator. Uh, They just released an early access beta to improve the experience, specifically on the Steam Deck. Uh, They made improvements to the garbage collector to be more aggressive on the Deck, the garbage collector being basically something that looks around in your RAM to see if there are unused bits that are stored that can be cleared off so you free up some system RAM. Uh, So they improved that uh, specifically for uh, the Steam Deck so it's more aggressive uh, because the Steam Deck doesn't have like giant amounts of RAM uh, and, and it shares that RAM with the integrated GPU for VRAM so it needs to be like clean all the time and not have old stuff stored that takes up space. So they fixed that, or they improved that at least. And they put a few things in place to avoid the VRAM filling up too fast on devices with an integrated GPU. So basically, you've got a little bit of VRAM on the iGPU, but it mainly is going to use the unified memory, the unified RAM of the system uh, to, to store some stuff. And so, yeah, this should make sure that, like Switch games, run way better on the Steam Deck and probably on all other integrated GPU devices, maybe a few laptops and stuff like that. Now, second... We have uh, Wine support for Wayland Uh, moving forward again. There's a new big code merge request that has now been accepted into Wine. And this one adds the driver mechanisms for Wine to handle the events sent by the Wayland compositor. Uh, events being, for example, a window being resized, a window being made full screen, or repainting the contents of a specific window, or how a window interacts with another one, stuff like that. So now Wine can understand these events from the compositor, which will make it a lot more useful. It doesn't mean that it's done. Uh, you, we are still going to use X Wayland to run uh, games running with Wine or Proton for the foreseeable future, but at least there's a lot of work being done on it and it seems to be moving quite fast. So maybe the future where we don't need X11 at all, even for gaming, is not that far away. We also have an update to VKD3D Proton, which is the compatibility layer that makes your DirectX 12 games playable on Linux. And so this new update is version 2.9. It will reduce the RAM usage massively on the first run of an application, so startup times should be better and it won't spike your energy consumption as well. And they also added support for the Vulkan graphics pipeline library. So this is a thing we already talked about in a lot of gaming news. It basically makes the shader compilation better and smoother, which means that when you enter a new area in a game, you should see less stutters as the shaders are compiled. And there are also performance improvements that should result in less CPU usage, less VRAM consumption. Basically, it's an all-in, all-in-one performance improvement package for your gaming. Uh, they also improved uh, the DirectX ray tracing 1.1 support, so we should have better ray tracing. Uh, it also shares some code now with DXVK to simplify the code base and avoid having redundant things. And of course, there are a host of game-specific fixes, but apparently they don't list them anymore because there are way too many. It's just not practical and it takes up too much time. So you can expect like your games to work way better when this update to VKD 3D Proton lands in Proton, which should happen pretty soon. They're, generally, you can wait about a few weeks and then you get the new release of Proton that implements that. So very nice to see this. And this will conclude this podcast, so I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links for all the articles, all the videos I talked about, whatever, they're all in the show notes. All the ways to support the channel or to follow me elsewhere are also in the show notes. And so, yeah, thanks for listening, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!